if fish could speak and they were ever complaining about the water, we would conclude that they were meant to be land animals. We are always complaining of our element, the element of time. We're surprised at it. It's grown so quickly. It's gone so fast or so slow and tedious. We're never at home with time because we were made for eternity. God is at home with time because he's already in eternity. And this morning I want you to think with me on an aspect of Bethlehem that is not frequently discussed and what it means for our everyday experience. The timing of the event. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. You know, a good historian who was not a Christian could say more about this than a Christian who's not a good historian. The historian would say to us, of course, B.C., A.D., the junction, the coming of Christ, it was at a time when the world was at peace after centuries of conflict. The great temple of Janus at Rome had its doors shut. It only happened when the world was at peace. And Christ, the Prince of Peace, was born at a time when the world was taking a breather from its bloody destructiveness. And thus the way was paved that the gospel of peace might spread quickly through the world until that peace was suddenly fractured again and Rome began to stagger and then fall and we were launched into the Middle Ages which were times of constant war and divisiveness. So a historian would say to us, the fullness of time, of course, the Roman Empire had the great Pax Romana, the Roman peace. He'd say more than that. It was safe to travel for the first time in history. The Romans had these great roads. Many of you who have been to Europe have been on those roads. And even by sea, there was a large amount of protection from pirates such as had been unknown in previous centuries. Travel was safer than it had ever been. Now, travel's never altogether safe, but it was safer than it had ever been. The way was getting ready for the apostles to go to the ends of the earth. We think that one of them ended up as far away as in India. His tradition is correct in that respect. So, peace, travel, language. When Alexander the Great conquered the world, he did it for his own ambition and then wept when there were no more worlds to conquer. But he was only an instrument in the hand of God because, because of his conquests. Now one language was universally known, north, south, east and west. Even in Palestine they spoke Greek. The same was true in heathen Germany of the time. The Angles and the Saxons were soon be speaking Greek when the missionaries came over from, from Roman Italy. The language of Greek was spreading through the world. A beautiful language for literature. And so when the New Testament was written, these men that were born speaking Aramaic did not write it in Aramaic, but they wrote it in Greek. The language of the world. So here's peace, and here's safety, one universal government, one universal language. And besides that, the diaspora. That means the dispersion. The Jews had been scattered 
over the whole known world. There wasn't a great city in the ancient world where there wasn't a Jewish synagogue, where there weren't Gentiles attending the synagogue, because Gentiles had a longing for something they didn't have. And many Gentiles went to Jewish synagogues throughout the world and learnt about the coming Messiah. So the scriptures were already, the Old Testament scriptures, were already in every great city through the ancient world. And the people who treasured them were there. There's another sense in which the world was ready. It was exhausted. Philosophy had done its best. Men of tremendous intellect like Plato, Socrates, Aristotle had said their bit, written their bit, and the world was no better. A philosopher is like someone who's on a dark night in a room where there are no windows, no light, is looking for a black cat that isn't there. Philosophers have never had much success. And Plato and Aristotle... These great men, for all their greatness, they encouraged homosexuality, they believed that slavery was normal, they all agreed that women had a very lowly place. They were quite out as regards the great realities of existence. So the philosophers hadn't achieved anything, and the religions of the day had failed. Right around the empire there was a a weariness about life. Suicide was pandemic in the Roman world. You can read the epitaphs still, and they're epitaphs of despair. I have about 20 of them listed somewhere at home. Epitaphs of despair in a world that had grown weary and tired. In the fullness of time, God came. It was the fullness of time for the Jewish race, because they too had failed. They'd been under the tutelage of law, as our first verses tell us in this passage, which Roy read to us so beautifully, and law had not brought them peace. Law had not brought them righteousness. Law had not brought them joy. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. God sent forth the gospel. We can see it now after the event that the timing was right. But what about for the long centuries and millenniums before the event? How did people feel then? Look with me, please, the book of Ezekiel in chapter 12. And we get an idea how those people who knew most, how they felt. Ezekiel chapter 12. Look at verse 22. Son of man, what is this proverb that you have about the land of Israel saying the days grow long and every vision comes to naught? For centuries before the birth of Christ, even the people that knew most were saying none of the prophecies have been fulfilled. God's not keeping his promises. The days are prolonged, they stretch on and on and on and nothing happens. We're very impatient. I know that better than most people. I have suffered from it for 60 years or so. But you know, it is the spirit of mankind. Some Bible translations translate Genesis 4 and verse 1, I have gotten a man, Jehovah. You see, in Genesis 3.15, the promise had been made that the woman would have a seed that would destroy evil. They would destroy the serpent. Genesis 3.15 I'll put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman. And its seed, a descendant of the woman, will crush your head. So his own heel will be bruised in the process. And so when Eve had her firstborn child, she said, I've gotten the man Jehovah. She thought the Messiah had come. So that's the way some of the translations give it. The Hebrew just has that Eve exclaimed, I've gotten a man, 
Yahweh or Jehovah. But God wasn't in that big of a hurry. The Messiah was going to tarry quite some time beyond the firstborn son into this world. Come with me please to the promised race, Genesis 12. Let's look at some more promises beyond Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 12, God really repeats to Abraham the promise he'd made to Adam and Eve about a seed that would bring blessing. And I want you to notice how old Abraham was at the time. It says in verse 4 of chapter 12, the last part of the verse, that Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And God said, I'm going to give you a seed that will be like the stars of heaven, like the dust of the earth. Well, Abraham thinks that's great. Sarah, get the house decorated, prepare things for the baby. But it wasn't that next year, nor the next, nor the next. It wasn't that decade, nor the next, nor the next. It says in verse 5, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. God seems so slow, doesn't he? He was 25 years keeping his promise. But it was the fullness of time. As a matter of fact, if you read all the verses about the birth of Isaac, you'll find again and again such expressions as at the set time, at the appointed season. It was the right time, but it seems so long in coming. The point is God's timing always seems right after it happens and never seems right before it happens. That's a universal experience for believers. For believers. And so God is enlarging his promise of a seed that will destroy the serpent, but he seems to drag his heels about Abraham. He'd have thought that he was about to uh, cop out of life altogether at 100 years old. Was it, uh, we read to you the other night, George Burns' statement, if you make 100, it's very safe because not many people die after. But of course, not many people reach a hundred. So Abraham thought, uh, God, uh, you're going to have to do something very quickly. But at the appointed time. What about Isaac's wife? Do you know the story about Rebecca? Come to chapter 25, please. You remember when Isaac married? It says in verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took to wife Rebecca. Forty years old, he wasn't in a hurry. But it says that this wife that he took was barren. Look at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Well, that looks pretty straightforward. He marries her. Within a few months, she's not pregnant. So he prays and God answers his prayer. Look, please, at verse 26, the last part of it. Isaac was how old? When the prayer was granted, how old was 60? It wasn't just the next month or the next year. It was 20 years before that prayer was answered. He was married at 40. He found his wife was barren. He prayed. God answered his prayer 20 years later. God's never in a hurry. I'd like to be more like that. Well, that's Isaac. I wonder were things better with Jacob. You know the story of Jacob. Give me children or I die. Who said that? Wasn't Jacob. Yeah, that was Rachel. The beautiful Rachel. She too was barren. God was preparing his ancient people for the great miracle of the virgin birth one day. Sarah's conception was 
a very great miracle. Same was true of Rebecca. Same was true of Rachel. Same was true of Hannah. You have it all the way through the early history as if God is saying, one day I'll do something you won't expect. A virgin shall conceive and bear a child. He was preparing them by these. But with Rachel, do you remember when her children came? Do you remember how many children Jacob had? A dozen. When did Rachel's children come along? There, there's the end. There's the end. Joseph. Benjamin. We know she didn't have any more after Benjamin. Why? She died with Benjamin. So after Jacob had had ten children and the wife that he loved so dearly was barren all these years, she conceived and bore Joseph. I wonder if Joseph learned from the history how to be patient. I suspect he did. Somewhere in the Psalms it talks about the iron entering into Joseph's soul in the prison. That would happen to me if I was there for a few hours. Do you know how long he was in prison? Have a look at the story of Joseph. You remember the time came when Joseph was elevated to the throne, but how old was he when he was first sold? Chapter 37 and verse 2. This is the history of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding his flock with his brothers. At 17 he was put in a pit and sold and after approximately 11 years we have the butler and baker episode and he urges the man whose dream he interprets happily to remember him. Look at chapter 40 please and look at verse 23. Joseph had said to this man, verse 14 tells us, Remember me when it is well with you. Do me the kindness, I pray you, to make mention of me to Pharaoh and to get me out of this house. And it says in the last verse, Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years! Remember how long it was for Christmas when you were a child? I think if you're in a prison... And the dungeon, it would seem longer from one year's end to the next than when you were a child waiting for one Christmas to the next. So after Joseph's been in prison about 11 years and he thinks, now I might get out, there's two whole years and his friend at court's forgotten him. But after two whole years, God moves. But he wasn't in a hurry. Turn to the book of Esther, if you would. When I read the book of Esther... I concluded that most of the events there took place within a couple of weeks. I was wrong, as frequently is the case. If you look at chapter 1 of the book, it says in verse 3 that in the third year of the reign of King Ahasuerus, he gave this banquet. You remember, it was a six-month party. That was some party. Um, if you come over to chapter 2, where you have the time of Esther's elevation, it says in the end of verse 16, it was the seventh year of his reign. So in those, in one chapter, you have gone five years. Now if you'll turn the page yet again to the chapter 3 and verse 7, as we come to the climax and the crisis, where Israel is menaced and almost wiped out. Remember, if Haman had his way, we wouldn't be here today. Your destiny and mine hung in the balance in the days of Queen Esther. Satan was trying to wipe out every Jew. Had he done so, the Messiah could never have been born. There'd have been no gospel. 
So it tells us in verse 7 of chapter 3, it was in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus that this great crisis comes. God is not in a hurry. We didn't mention that when you come to the end of Genesis, you're about to come into Exodus, that too has more than a week or two between them. Do you know how long it is between the end of the story of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus? Now, scholars are divided on the point, but they're all agreed about this, that it is a matter of centuries. And so here are the Jews in in, uh, captivity, in bondage, and they say God promised that one day we'd rule in the land of Canaan, and here we are slaves, we don't have enough food to eat, we don't have straw to make bricks, you know. What is God doing about his promises? You have a similar great gap between Malachi and Matthew. We do know approximately uh, what that is, about 400 to 450 years. Think of the silent centuries going by after Malachi. And the children of Israel saying, why doesn't God do something? Ever said that? Oh yes, we've all said that. Times of terrible trouble, anxiety and oppression and concern and God doesn't seem to be doing anything like when the woman pled for her child and Jesus answered her not a word and they told him Lazarus was sick and when Jesus heard that he stayed where he was. God seems to have a consistency about his behaviour whether it's pleasing always to us or not. He walks with lordly grand steps. No hasty scuttle across the parched terrain of life. But the leisurely grandeur of omnipotence that does all things well and always at the fullness of time. But the Israelites were saying, as I would have said, God, I wish you'd do something. They had a good forgettery. Sometime we'll have a sermon on the Bible's use of the word remember. It uses it so often because we don't often remember what we ought to. We remember what we ought not to, the bad things. We forget what we should not forget, the good things. And Israel should have remembered that there were times when God wasn't silent, when God was very active, and it didn't seem to do them much good. When God brought them out of Egypt, there were signs of plenty. Ten plagues upon Egypt. The Red Sea is parted. The manna falls. The mountains all on smoke. The ground shakes. There's a terrible glory up there. And a sound that seemed as though it could be heard throughout the whole earth. So there were signs of plenty. God wasn't silent then. God was really doing something then. What did it do for Israel? Well, you read the record of over ten rebellions. Ten rebellions among the people. The very people he took out of Egypt. The very people who saw the signs and wonders. Why do I mention that? Because you and I attempted to think, if God would only show his hand and do something, it would be so much easier for me. That if God would only appear at night and say, look, don't worry, I'm taking care of it, you'll see it happen in the morning. We'd never forget that. Israel constantly forgot that. It didn't do them much good at all, all these signs and wonders. You take the reign of Solomon. He had everything. He had everything. Oscar Wilde said, there are two tragedies in life. One is not getting what you want. Well, we all know that tragedy because none of us get all we want. That's great. It really is great. It would be terrible if we got all we want. That would be a dreadful thing to happen to us. That's why Oscar Wilde said the second thing is getting all you want. Two tragedies. Not getting what you want. Secondly, getting what you want. Solomon got what he wanted. And he almost lost his soul. He lost his God. 
Idolatry began to creep into the kingdom. God had to punish him. He tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes, I hated life. He was on the verge of suicide. So there are times when God has spoken, come out in the open, done great things, given people all they wanted. It hasn't helped them at all. Any more than if you take a modern child and give that child everything they want, that child will automatically grow up spontaneously a perfect child. The truth is otherwise. The truth is otherwise. While the child must be assured with a perfect certainty that he or she is greatly loved, because that's the only thing that gives assurance. After that, you need to remember that the more a child has in the early years, the harder life is to deal with in the later. A child doesn't suddenly learn self-denial to do with little, to battle against the odds. But you know, Israel never seemed to learn. doesn't matter what God did. Never seemed to do a thing. I would say to you again, that God is never late, but always to our carnal hearts he seems delayed. But he's not really late. Look at Acts 12 with me. Acts 12. You know the story well. In chapter 12 of the book of Acts, it tells us how Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to a church. He killed James, the brother of John. When he saw that pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And he intended after Passover, to deal with him. That's what verse 4 is saying. In verse 6, the very night when Herod was about to bring him out. And you know the rest of the story. So the very night before Peter's about to be executed, he might have been there for weeks. We don't know. He might have been there for months. But God left it the last night. But it was time. Do you remember the time when the multitudes of the Assyrians came down against Israel and spoke profanely about Israel's God and Hezekiah took the letter from the enemy and read it out in the temple? And when it looked as though it was about to be swallowed up, you know what happened. The angel of the Lord went forth that night and slew the host of the Assyrians. And when the Israelites got up the next morning, behold, they, the Assyrians, were all dead men. God seems to delay, but he is always on time. The story of the storm at sea when Christ came walking at the night is not an early evening deliverance. If you read the story as it's given in Matthew, our Lord came in the fourth watch of the night. That means the darkest hour before dawn. After they battled with the darkness, he came at the end of the night, before the first gleamings of dawn. It almost seems that God, in matters of timing, as in everything else, is much more concerned with our holiness than our temporary happiness. It is a great insight to learn that. God is much more concerned with our holiness than our temporary happiness. Because infinite happiness and eternal happiness is dependent on the holiness that comes as we trust in Jesus. And if we trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, if we trust in him for the imputation of righteousness, we must learn to trust him in the tragedies, the trials, the dilemmas, the problems that are endless and unceasing for every son and daughter of Adam. There is no end to those things in this life. And we must move 
from the faith that accepts forgiveness, from the faith that accepts righteousness, to a faith that accepts the timing of God. Because that timing is never going to be to you and to me what we would have chosen. It's always going to be to us like ordinary time. Too fast, too slow, things never just right. Never just right. It is a great thing to know God's more instant. Now, infinite happiness, eternal happiness, which depends on our being closely linked with him, my faith, than he is in some temporary joy. When Solomon prayed at the temple, he said, Lord, every man knows the plague of his own heart. Every man and woman has at least one plague of the heart. One tremendous concern something that eats them up. Something if they couldn't divert their thoughts from it might send them mad. Because it's not healthy to let the minds dwell on problems. When they come, that's the time to pray about them. When they roll back again, that's the time to hand them over again. If they roll back again, you hand them over again. Whatever gets you, whatever gets your attention, gets you. But we need often to say to ourselves, God is more concerned with my holiness than my happiness which is only a way of saying he's more concerned with our infinite happiness than our temporary happiness. So God is never late. He always comes in the fullness of time. He always comes at the right time. But it never seems that way while he is tarrying. It always seems to us that God is careless about the timing of things until it happens. And then we see it. It may not always seem as clear as I have stated it. Here's John the Baptist, a man as young as Christ, almost, a few months older. John the Baptist in his early 30s. What a power for good he could have been. Why couldn't he have been one of the 12 disciples? Can any mortal mind plumb the depths of the mystery whereby the Son of God who could open the tomb did not open the prison house where the Baptist was? If we think long enough, we can find a reason. In the ages to come, there would be millions of people put in prisons through the Middle Ages for their faith. And they would wonder time and time again, have I been unfaithful that God doesn't deliver me? And then their mind would run through scripture for an answer. And then they'd say, no, there was another one. To whose faithfulness Christ testified, among them born of women, there hasn't risen a greater than John the Baptist. But Christ permitted him to linger and to die undelivered in a shocking, revolting prison. And so the death of John the Baptist, so untimely, was yet timely in view of the fact that his experience would be repeated by millions through the ages. Would you say, well, why didn't God deliver the millions? Because the blood of the martyrs has always been the seed of the church. That's why. It's only when people are seen to care about something enough to die for it that people begin to think it's worth living for. See, God either matters tremendously or he doesn't matter at all. God is either everything to us or he is nothing. You can't have God plus. You can't have God plus. Not in your thinking. It works out that way. If you've got God, you've got everything. Not everything you want, everything you need. But in your thinking, it's got to be God. Blesses the man his mind stops at God. That's the Hebrew rendering of Isaiah 26 too. 
I'll keep him in perfect peace. His mind stops at God. That's great. So there are times when God doesn't seem to come on time. That was the way it was with Lazarus. He was dead. He was decaying. I guess the most striking example of all is our Lord himself. He's in Gethsemane. He's sweating great drops of blood. What a wonderful time for the angels to come to swoop him, sweep him up to heaven and say, that's enough. You were willing. You did well. It was in your heart. We'll count the will for the deed. That's it. And then all the hallelujahs of the angelic throngs as he's welcomed back into glory. But no God sent his angels at that time. And when they strip him to beat him, and some scholars think the New Testament record records two such floggings, two floggings, again there was no deliverance. And then when he's finally put naked on a cross and cries out, my God, my God, why haven't you done something? God meant that we should learn that the evidence that God is being still is no evidence we're really forsaken. The evidence of our depression, our isolation, our loss is no evidence we are forsaken. If the Holy Son of God could experience it, if it could happen to him, whenever you feel like it, look at the cross. However bad things are, it does not mean you're really forsaken. God was there in the shadows. And when the humanity of Christ, unsupported by his deity, gave the natural cry of dereliction, because he was not being miraculously supported, he was being treated as sin itself. He was in that sense forsaken. In that sense. And so if God seems to tarry and delay, we are to remember that thus it has been with the Baptists, with Lazarus, with Jesus, with all of God's children at one time or another. You're never going to get through life easily. When Scott Peck began his book, The Road Less Travelled By, he began it with a three-word sentence. Do you remember it? Life is difficult. I'll say it is. Life is difficult. Once you get out of your early childhood, life is a battle from there on and not always a march and sometimes a regressive march. Life isn't easy for anybody. And the only way we can smooth it is to trust God where we cannot trace him. Would you turn with me back to the story of Abraham and notice something in Genesis 12. God had promised the land of Canaan. And when Abraham finally got there, in verse 6, he passed through the land. He came to Canaan. And the last part of verse 6 says, And at that time, the Canaanites were there. A heavy shadow rests on him. Here's what God has promised him. He gets there and the Canaanites there. And he looks up, God, are you fooling me or what? So how does he react? I like verse 9. And the KJV puts it, and Abraham went on still. And Abraham went on still. The RSV says, and Abraham journeyed on still going. Still going. He went on still. And how much of the fulfilment of the promise did he see? He had to buy a place to bury his wife in Canaan. When he died, the only place he owned in the land was big enough for two coffins. His wife 
and his own. These all died in faith, not having seen the promise, but being fully persuaded. For they looked for a city that had foundations. You know, from childhood we've been taught about the text that says, the angel of the Lord and campeth around about them that fear him and delivers them. Dear friend, sometimes that deliverance is after death. And that's not strange, because if we could have every other problem solved and that, not that one, what would be the use? You could have every other problem solved, but not the death problem. What's the good of it? If there's a zero at the end, what's the good of anything? So the angel of the Lord doesn't camp about those that fear him. He camps around many a sepulchre, many a grave. The angel of the Lord does camp there, and he will deliver. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Trump of God, the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ. So dear friends, in the fullness of time represents everything God does. He drops no stitches. His clock is never too slow and never too fast. The problem's never with him. The problem's always with me. I would like to be God. I would like to call the tune. But you see, that's the desire, the omnipotence of God without having his omniscience, which is stupid. Let us be like Abraham. We don't see the complete fulfillments of the promises of God. God seems to tarry and delay. But friends, you go on still. And one day, faith will turn to sight. Let us pray. Lord, at this Christmas season, we think of the timing. Jesus came in the fullness of time. Grant we may believe that that is true about all things that take us and overtake us. That you're always doing things in the fullness of time. So help us to go on still, regardless of appearances, whatever the crucifixion, believing the angel of God is encamping there. And one day there'll be glory, fulfillment and eternal joy. 